This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated G. Nil Desperandum 14, The Architect of Apathy, by Shelley Lee. Shelley is an active member of the Science Fiction Writers of America, and her fiction has appeared many times in Nature, Cosmos Online, a forthcoming DAW anthology, and more. She has just recently sold her first novel, The Royal Hunter. Our narrator is John Robinson, host of the Dark Forest podcast. The Architect of Apathy by Shelley Lee It is said that if history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. So let me tell you a story about apathy and how it came into this world. Now, some people think that hate is the opposite of love. But really, does one hate because he cannot love? No. One hates because he has loved and lost, turning hate and love into neighbors. However, apathy, by definition being the absence of passion, emotion, excitement, is the sole antithesis of love. And before it came to earth, it lived in the form of a house that hovered among the clouds. You know that house? What house? The one in the clouds, with the tall green trees and great white pillars holding up balconies of black iron. Apathy, it's called. Oh, duh, everyone knows apathy. What a strange name for home. A smile crossed the face of the young boy named Rhett. He said to the girl, I'm going to visit apathy. At this, the girl, twelve, about his age, chuckled and told him, That's silly. No one ever journeys to apathy. Besides, how are you going to get there? It's so high above us. Rhett just shrugged and said, I'll ask nicely. Ask who? Grinning, he looked up at the heavens and pointed at the great floating house cutting through the sky. Him. He had seen the old man a dozen or so times in the night, while his parents believed him to be sleeping soundly in bed. The man would carry a flashlight as he walked to the trees on the edge of his front yard and looked down at the lights in the abyss below. Rhett could watch him like the old man could watch the world forever, full of curiosity and apprehension. After a moment of squinting into the rays of the afternoon sun, trying to get a glimpse of whatever Rhett was pointing at, the girl finally threw her hands up in the air. You're a crazy one, Rhett, she said, and walked away. But inside his house, in the monitor room, the architect of apathy heard Rhett's words, and as he watched the boy sitting on the grass with his head craning upward, a thought wormed into his mind. Perhaps the boy can help me fix the disease that is plaguing the house. Perhaps with the fresh naivete and imagination that burns bright inside the youthful, he can preserve apathy. And so, with an outstretch of his hand, the old man summoned Rhett 
off the ground and with flicks of the wrist lifted the boy up and up until he reached the treed gates of apathy. At first, young Rhett did not understand what was happening to him as he ascended toward the clouds, and the architect could feel the boy's pulse in his solid hands of air racing to the unsteady beat of fear. But the closer the architect carried him to apathy, the wider Rhett's eyes grew. Then suddenly, between the height that corporate buildings reached and the altitude that airplanes flew, Rhett seemed to understand what was happening. He ceased to struggle, and his heartbeat began to regulate again. Turning over on his stomach, Rhett watched the people, cars, buildings fade into unrecognizable dots as he flew higher and higher, all sense of fear now abandoned. A smile crossed the architect's face, though it faded after half a second. He felt a sharp pain in his chest, reminding him of what he had done wrong. A sprinkle of excitement had entered into his soul, sparked and flashed, and then disappeared as quickly as it had come. You are the architect of apathy, he reminded himself. Anything and everything else is unnecessary. From the moment his feet touched the ground again, Rhett's eyes couldn't stay in a single spot for more than a few seconds. Everything around him was so full of life. The green trees generously sleeved with leaves, the dwarfed evergreens lining the walkway up to the front of the house, the white marble fountain situated at the center of the terrace of shamrock shrubs and indigo flowers, pumping out clear water and letting it spread like a halo as it landed back in the pool. So much more satisfying than the vague outlines from my window, Rhett said to himself so much more beautiful than I imagined it in my dreams. The smile frozen on his face, he continued to head for the front doors of apathy, happily anticipating the man who lived in such a beautiful place, everything here for him and him alone to enjoy. The double doors were maple wood, with a glass window in the middle, the shape of the Star of David. As Rhett approached, the doors swung open, cutting the star in half. His foot hit the tiled floor with a soft click. From his bedroom window to Apathy's front yard, Rhett had thought that he'd feel the same overwhelming excitement upon entering the house that had long seduced his interest from the sky. However, he had no such luck. No, not at all. Looking around at the glittering, high-ceilinged foyer room, Rhett knew that his jaw should have unhinged. Instead, he found himself filled with a strange nothingness. No more excitement, no more pleasure. Even the smile fell from his lips. Just nothing. And through this nothingness, a voice spoke from the top of the large marble staircase. Good afternoon, Rhett. Rhett peered up and locked eyes with the bearded man in his mid, possibly late, sixties. The beard was silver white, while the thin hair on his head possessed a few strands of brown. Still in a state of unfamiliar detachment, Rhett said to the man, You are the owner of the house, then? Descending the steps of the staircase, the man's black dress shoes made no sound as they touched the spotless floor. When the man reached the last step, he extended a hand toward Rhett. More than just the owner, 
he said as Rhett shook his hand. I am Apathy's architect. Rhett nodded, hesitating after he pulled out of the architect's firm grip. He had had so many things to say, so many questions to ask. And yet, as he stared into the man's water-blue eyes, all words escaped him. Come, the architect said, gesturing at the room across. I have just spent quite a bit of time fixing the house. You must let me give you a tour. Rhett tried to smile, but it almost hurt to do so, and he stopped trying. He followed the architect into the next room, and the tour began. As you might imagine, apathy is not your average house, the architect said. Likewise, the rooms are non-conventional as well. He stopped, and Rhett halted behind him. This is the room of liberation, he said, gesturing at the space around them. I spent all my mornings here meditating. Rhett took a look around and frowned at the cornerless white walls, bearing no pictures, no patterns, no color. Liberation, he repeated. Liberation from pain, fear, desire, pleasure, everything. Rhett tried to find a window in the room but couldn't. He looked for a lamp, but no such luck. Finally, he located the source of light when he moved close to the curving wall and realized that it was composed of millions of tiny, almost inscrutable pores. Light was flooding the room from every direction, abundant and ambiguous. Why must you free yourself from pleasure? Rhett asked, turning to the architect standing behind him. That's always a good emotion. The architect stared at him for a long time, no more than ten seconds really, but it seemed like hours, and then the old man spoke. Any emotion, good or bad, is unnecessary in apathy. That's just the way it is. Besides, how does one measure pleasure without pain? Rhett did not have an answer and proceeded to follow the architect into the next room. This is the room of insecurities, the architect said. Stored in this space are the insecure thoughts of every person on the planet. I come here to gain a better understanding of the world below me, below apathy. The edge of the room was so dark that Rhett stumbled a few times on his way, blinking to adjust to the new surroundings. He knew that there was no artificial light available, however, because any other light would draw away from the beauty of the pink aurora floating around in the center its rays extending out like waning arms. A shiver ran down Rhett's back as one of the rays passed through him, and he stuck his hands into his pant pockets. The seemingly warm pink streaks were freezing. Walk forward, the architect coaxed. And so Rhett did, shuffling toward the contained aurora until his ears began to pick up on a soft murmuring. Gradually, the sound turned into words, though scattered and uttered by a multitude of voices. Can you hear them? Rhett said, yes. The architect approached to stand next to him and reached out to grasp one of the nearby rays. Like cotton, the pink emanation stretched in his hand until it severed in half. These are the secrets buried inside insecure hearts. These are the words that people never give voice to. And they end up here, in apathy? Rhett turned to the old man. Better here than on earth. Rhett was about to ask another question, but before he could open his mouth, the architect turned and strode out of the room. 
Rhett followed him around the base of the staircase, through a beautifully carved wooden door, and into what looked like a large mess hall. But there were ivy vines climbing the stone walls, the ceiling. Some hung so low that they brushed the floor, projecting a stomach-clenching deadness through the room. The ivy was not there for decoration, as Rhett was quick to realize when his eyes took notice of what was cradled between the entangled dark vines. Tucked under vines were tiny jars of fluid, and floating inside the fluid of each jar was a human heart. The architect spoke, This is the room of broken hearts. Rhett couldn't tear his eyes away from the jungle before him as he stared at the hearts, different sizes, different tints, though none beating. But out of all these broken hearts, suspended behind the glass jars, one in particular caught Rhett's eye. It was bigger, ten times bigger than any of the other hearts in the room, and it was white and glowing. The light didn't come from the surface of the heart, though, because the surface was dark and veined like any other. No, the glow escaped from inside, seeped through the hundreds of tiny cracks in the heart. Whose heart is this one? Rhett couldn't help but ask. The architect paused for only a beat before replying, Mine. And silence fell over the room. A thread of pity wormed into Rhett's chest, but only stayed long enough to make him feel a sharp twinge before disappearing into nothingness again. Short enough to make Rhett hurt without understanding the source of his fleeting pain. I think this tour should come to a close here, the architect finally said, rubbing his eyes. He looked worn out at this point. Many rooms in apathy are self-explanatory anyway. He was about to walk away when Rhett said, Wait, um, what am I here for exactly? The architect shrugged. This was your wish, wasn't it? To visit the house in the clouds? He stepped out of the room of broken hearts and Rhett followed. Of course, if you want to leave now, I will safely send you home to your parents. But the thought of going home, back to staring out his bedroom, didn't appeal to Red in the least. In fact, nothing on earth did anymore, and he realized that he would be perfectly content living here in apathy for a while. And so Red said, is it all right if I stay? After a short pause, the architect nodded. Yes, you may stay as long as you like, he said but I feel I must tell you something about this house. What's that? It's crumbling, he said. I don't know what's causing it, but apathy is falling to pieces. Rhett took a careful look, but all he saw was the unblemished tiles of the floor, the shimmering chandelier's crystal shards hanging above the imperforate staircase. I don't even see a speck of dust. The architect let out a tired sigh as he began to climb the stairs. That's because I just fixed up the place, he said. But let's be realistic. I'm growing weaker by the day, and soon I'll be unable to keep maintenance on apathy. What will I do then? I can help you, Rhett said almost immediately, finding his excuse to stay now. I'm good at repairing things. Really good, actually. Well, it would be nice if you... Standing at the top stair, the architect gestured from one side of the foyer to the other helped around where necessary. Thank you, Red. And with those words, he turned and disappeared down the long stretch of hallway, leaving Rhett standing alone in the room. Rhett shrugged and scanned his surroundings one more time. 
and again he could not find even a single crack or patch of faded paint. How hard would it be to keep maintenance of apathy? The first thing that required fixing was the cabinet doors, and they came to Rhett's attention the next morning after his first night in apathy. He hadn't gotten a wink of sleep, though, for he had spent the entire night with the warm wind sweeping over his face as he peered down into the darkness of the world. It was strange, almost funny. Inside apathy, he could hardly feel an ounce of excitement or pleasure inside him. But just outside in the courtyard, surrounded by trees and shrubs and flowers, Watching the twinkling city lights and the blanketing abyss of the countryside, Rhett could feel what seemed like every emotion at once. But back to the cabinet doors. All morning, Rhett marched around the house with his screwdriver, tightening every hinge, and by the time he finished, all 500 or so cabinet doors in apathy swung straight again. While eating lunch, Rhett said to the architect, Did something happen? Maybe a shift in balance to make all those hinges on the cabinet doors become loose? The architect chewed slowly on his sandwich, seeming to give the question some thought before saying, Unusual things happen in a floating house in the clouds, things that even its architect does not understand. Rhett sat back in his seat, sighing. The architect had no reason to lie to him, and he believed the answer. However, it was much less than satisfying and left Rhett with only one choice. He would have to figure out the cause of this strange chaos himself, and would have to solve the problem, whatever it turned out to be, on his own. After lunch, Rhett put the dishes in the sink and began to wash them, setting the plates and the silverware in a tub when he finished. He turned off the water and was just about to dry his hands when he heard a dripping noise. Looking back around, he saw that there was a leak in the faucet. And so, running to the basement shut-off valve to turn off the water system and hunting down tools, Rhett spent the entirety of the afternoon fixing the leaky faucet. By the time he finished, the sun had gone down, and a gibbous moon was now hanging high in the night sky. Although his brain was pounding from tightening washer screws, capping on packing nuts, and winding threads around the stem of the faucet, he had had a productive day. Without bothering to sit out in the front courtyard and stare out in wonder at life below, he crawled into bed and was staring into the inside of his eyelids almost immediately. He woke just in time to take a stroll outside and catch the sunrise. His eyes didn't leave the rays poking through the clouds until the sun had almost climbed directly above apathy. But again, there was much to do today. When Rhett returned inside, he found that dust covered every inch of the house. He wondered how, in a matter of hours, so much dust could cloak a previously immaculate house. It took him a full three days of dusting, three rooms, and countless wash rags to restore the house to its original sparkling condition. Occasionally, the architect would drop in and observe the progress that he was making, but outside of these random appearances and the three meals that they shared every day, Rhett never really saw the old man much. After the dusting adventure, everything quieted down for a couple of days, and Rhett spent his time exploring new rooms and towers in apathy. The architect was almost always in the Room of Liberation, or the edge of the courtyard, surveying the tiny dots moving on the ground. 
Sometimes Rhett and the architect would sit and look down together, pointing out this or that. But Rhett seemed to get the feeling that the architect kept everything at arm's length, stingy with smiles, impassive to anything Rhett would say or ask. Rhett also noticed that the architect was physically weakening with each day. The old man's breath would become heavy after just a few minutes of walking. His hands began to shake more and more often, and a repressed pain constantly sat at the surface of his expressions. One morning, Rhett was scouting around the north end of the house when he realized that the vanilla-colored paint was peeling off the walls. Frowning, he backpedaled out of the large music room and returned to the room of insecurities, from which he had left not thirty seconds ago. Sure enough, the walls of the room of insecurities looked just as tattered as the music room. The room had not looked this way thirty seconds ago. The room had been flawless. And so, retrieving cans of paint and rollers from the storage closet, Rhett set out to repaint the walls. Between covering the tiled floors with plastic sheets, protecting the baseboards with tape, and rolling paint over the walls, it took him eight hours to restore the room of insecurities alone. But as he moved into the music room and began to prepare to repaint its walls, he looked out the window at the room across the courtyard and saw that its paint, too, was crumbling away. With this sight, a dark realization settled into him. He wasn't going to be able to repaint all the walls before something else broke or cracked. He would never be able to return apathy to the condition it used to be in, to that state of perfection in the moment that Rhett had entered its front doors. Destruction in apathy seemed to be an imminent force of nature, one that he could no longer struggle against. And so he let the paint roller and the masking tape drop from his hands and left the room searching for a place to ponder. First, he went to his bedroom, thinking that peaceful silence would help him figure out what was wrong with apathy. He paced across the length of his room for hours, going through his days here in the house, all the rooms he had discovered, the broken hearts, the voices of insecurities. Rhett frowned. He knew that something was missing, but he couldn't manage to put his finger on it. He walked out of the bedroom and began roaming the upstairs, wondering what was missing. It wasn't anything material, no, just a feeling. Before he knew it, he had arrived in the foyer room and was approaching the front doors. The glass star of David window was cracked and the right door was tilted off its hinge. Another problem to fix, Rhett thought as he stepped through the doors. His feet froze as he stood on Apathy's porch, looking out at the courtyard. Everything was still, silent, like all sound had escaped from the world. Standing eye to eye with the great white moon in the dark, Rhett felt an overwhelming wave of that missing something wash over him. The feeling, feelings, all of it, slammed into him like a steel fist, making him want to keel over with happiness, pain, triumph, despair. Nevertheless, he kept his composure and continued to the middle of the courtyard and sat down in the grass facing the house. Apathy. Apathy. He understood now. Rhett, what are you doing out here at this ungodly hour? Rhett lifted his eyes up from the cracks on the ground to find the architect standing at the front door of the house, not standing really, but leaning his frail body against the frame of the door. 
I'm sorry, I can't do it, Rhett said, frustration coursing in every breath. I'm good at repairing, painting, whatever. But he trailed off, thinking of a way to convey his thoughts to the architect. You made a valiant effort, the architect said, as he sat down next to Rhett. Don't apologize for something like that. Well, wait, Rhett interrupted, sticking out a hand to pause him. After I tell you what I think should be done with apathy, I'm positive that I'll have something to apologize about. The architect fell into silence, and Rhett continued. Surely you must notice the emotional difference between being here, outside, and being inside apathy. He stood up and walked a few paces around the fountain. Out here, I feel as close to heaven as I'll ever be. Happiness, anger, I can feel all those soul-touching emotions in heavy doses. But from the moment I step inside that house, Rhett turned and found the architect's empty eyes staring back at him. I can't feel a thing. Rhett watched the architect's face carefully as he waited for a response. The old man looked like he wanted to smile, maybe cry. But in the end, his expressions remained unmoved. Finally, he spoke. I used to feel the same way back when I had just constructed apathy and everything was perfect, pristine. But after you've spent many human lifetimes up here, the line between indoor and out blends together and everything becomes nothing. So you're telling me that you can feel nothing? No pain, pleasure, anything? The architect shrugged. Apathy makes everything else unnecessary. So burn apathy, Rhett said, throwing his hands up. He wanted to grab the architect by the shirt collar and shake his thoughts, feelings into him. Only fear of hurting the old man held him back. Why do you cling to it if it's destroying everything that makes you human? The architect looked away and gestured at the house in front of them, with its elegant decor and white Roman columns lined like the bars of a jail cell. This is all that I have, he said. And burning it down... He shook his head. You realize that if apathy is unleashed into the world, everyone whose thoughts are stored in the room of insecurities, the room of broken hearts, they'll all be able to numb themselves with apathy. It's a misconceived and destructive cure. And so you're electing to trap it here forever in the form of a house? There was a silence for a long moment as Rhett stared at the architect, the architect back at him. Finally, Rhett said, Nothing, not even apathy, is meant to be bottled up and suffocated within the confines of a house, no matter how magnificent. You can't trap knowledge. The architect let out a small chuckle, although the smile didn't travel farther than the curl of his lips. A frown of pain touched his forehead, but nevertheless, he said, Wise beyond your years, Rhett. He paused a moment. I could use some rest. Maybe find a nice quiet place on earth and take a nap or something. Rhett nodded and set a hand on the architect's shoulder. So let it burn, he said. Let the house burn and let the world below you figure out what to do with apathy. The architect looked back at the house, its haunting beauty glaring back almost defiantly. Then the old man raised his hands and made a sweep motion and flames of fire erupted from the roof. Rhett began to feel the emitting warmth from the burning house as he sat there watching the fire grow bigger and bigger. 
A big smile slowly spread from one end of his mouth to the other. He turned and found the architect smiling as well. It was still tight, almost fearful, but Rhett had no doubt that the old man would recover his smile along with his heart in time. And so the house burned, burned, burned. And the apathetic remnants penetrated through the clouds and floated down to earth like silver snowflakes. Myths, legends, fables, fairy tales. Whether they are the intense stories about Norse gods, the dramatic tales of ancient Greek heroes, or the simple children's story of a grape-eating fox, certain stories have been in the human consciousness for hundreds or even thousands of years. And with the rational thinking and scientific order bequeathed the modern Westerner by the Enlightenment, we can look at them and state with pedantic certainty that these stories are just myths. They are just simple fairy tales to entertain children with. Was there ever a grand house in the clouds called Apathy which fell to earth? Was there ever a super-strong demigod who could change the course of two rivers with his bare hands? Did a tortoise really ever win a race with a hare? Probably not. But really, I think those are the wrong questions to ask. In fact, I would go so far as to say the questions themselves are irrelevant. We tell stories. As human beings, stories are how we relate to each other, and how we relate to the world around us. When we meet a good friend, we tell one another stories of what has happened in our life since last we met. Does it matter if those stories are true stories or not? The answer is no, because the whole point of such tales is not to explain the physical reality of our history. The point of the story is to tell us about the person sharing the story. These stories, whether told around a campfire thousands of years ago, or shared over coffee at the local Starbucks last week, tell us who we are as human beings. They tell us where we have come from, and where we are going. We forget that at our collective peril. But never fear, because I am not going to forget to ask you for money. We need your donations in order to keep paying our authors. So if you have enjoyed this or any of our stories, please visit www.ndstories.com to leave a comment and a donation. Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. Audio production is in cooperation with the Bear Crawling Nation. Engineer Hugh Morrison and executive producer Charles McFall. Mm-hmm.